The Naive Theater of the Air presents Rewired by Matthew Broyles. Episode 17, A Clockwork Moloch. There is a silence in the diaspora tonight, a hole in the fabric of our frayed community. Though the streets cry for justice, the defendants' names changing from one side to the other, there is no answer. In the midst of such turmoil, such confusion about what is real, where are our leaders? The discord in Brooklyn is almost as pronounced as it was before the secession. Chairman Weiss speaks of unity in vague, populistic terms as if we have all suddenly forgotten our legacy. We are the children of doubt. We continue to exist as ourselves because we took into our own hands the decision to cast off the eyes that watch, the words that control, the thoughts of others made to seem like our own. We do not trust nebulous assurances of prosperity. We insist on the truth. And from where will this truth emerge? On the satellite feed from Texas, we see dry analyses of images which have shocked us to our cores. We hear no alarm, no surprise, no answers from Free Detroit, King High, So Sent LA, or Brooklyn. Only a cavernous, pregnant silence from the heavens. And in that silence, we find that once again, our fate is not our own to make. Once again, it is being made for us. If you have ever believed that you were free, now is the time to take a stand for transparency from our leaders. I have taken it upon myself to initiate a petition. Our demands are as follows. One an acknowledgement of the covert scientific inquiry into the Vorn phenomenon by the diaspora scientific elite. Two, a full accounting of the findings from said inquiry, including everything broadcast on HPL satellite transmissions that diaspora citizens were not privy to before we stumbled upon their existence. Three, full disclosure of any known side effects stemming from the rewiring process. Four, an official public forum to discuss the import of these findings and to issue binding resolutions for consequences upon those who continue to traffic in secrets on this topic. We have not forgotten our legacy. We speak into the silence. You who hoard knowledge from on high have thus far decided not to listen. From this moment forward, do so at your own peril. Lieutenant Carlos Aguilar looked into the gathering dots on the radar display and saw the face of death. He knew a little something about fighting. He'd grown up mostly in Ciudad Juarez, a city which left scars, many of which were responsible for his hasty immigration to Texas upon turning 18. His parents, underground rewired, 
fled Texas during the violence of the reclamation, secretly rewiring their son when he was 13, and old enough to understand how to keep the change undiscovered. But that change was an important one, and despite his efforts, his inability to interface fully with the other teens led to ostracism. At the time, he placed the blame squarely on his parents, who only received notice of his disappearance into Texas after he had finished Republic Army boot camp and gotten some perspective on what exactly the rewiring procedure meant. If he was honest, he still hadn't quite forgiven them. But he understood them better. He also understood the fear on the streets in Mexico, suspicion of the strange people in the breakaway republic to their north. He suspected it was not so different in the U.S. Somewhere on the other side of the line, another young officer was likely observing the forces coalescing at Fort Walters, their mind manifesting propaganda-driven apparitions of the alien soldiers facing them. They probably saw the face of death, too. Aguilar hoped it wouldn't come to that. Colonel Haley was en route, but until he arrived, this was the lieutenant's battle. With a company of troops pulled piecemeal from other line outposts, he had fully staked out the entry corridor, and as much of the surrounding land as possible. He had artillery and anti-aircraft units in position, just in case. And now, as the telltale signature of inbound choppers flashed onto his display, he was glad of his caution, but also terrified at the prospect of actually using the ordnance. Captain Perez, in communicating Haley's orders earlier, had made it clear that the line was not to be crossed, either by his forces or the enemy's. In the event of a single U.S. Army unit crossing the border, Aguilar had been given full authority to unleash any means necessary to prevent incursion. The lieutenant really, really hoped that Haley would arrive soon to remove that decision from his hands. Complicating matters was the transit of the fugitives. Cutler had sent the telegraph notification to San Angelo earlier, so this was definitely a manhunt. An infrared signal from a small inbound vehicle ahead of the wired ground forces was now stationary a mile and a half from the line. One of the choppers hovered over that cooling blip. From topographic analysis, he suspected the runners could not drive across the creek and were proceeding on foot. He had Sergeant Flowers update the colonel via radio. Scanners had picked up multiple explosions along the route to the entry point. These were now decreasing, and the U.S. units were advancing much more slowly. Clearly, they had deployed mine detector drones, which would take more time. This did not apply to the choppers, however, as the others moved closer to the helicopter monitoring the presumably abandoned vehicle. They had caught the scent. More than likely, they were dropping troops as they moved forward. One had moved ahead of the others and settled into position a mere half-mile from the line, just above the entry corridor. The fugitives would be cut off, unless they used another route. Sergeant Flowers, is anti-aircraft online? Affirmative, sir. All right, lock onto the nearest chopper and fire only on my order. Yes, sir. The two men shared a glance. Aguilar remembered reading about the Cuban Missile Crisis when global nuclear holocaust had been averted by 45 minutes or so, and then only by the intervention of a submarine captain who insisted on an order confirmation. The lieutenant had to be sure about this, and he wasn't. Sir, remote infrared detects ground units opposite the entry point. Chopper above them moving northeast, away from the line. U.S. troops, Aguilar thought, left in wait for their prey. As long as they stayed on their side of the line, he wasn't moving a muscle. Whoever these wanted men were, the wires could have them as far as he was concerned. But if the soldiers crossed over, their fate would be on his head. Colonel Haley, sir. As you were. Any change since the last update? Uh, the fugitives are cut off, sir, unless they use another route. They will, with choppers in play. 
Cutler's probably already got a plan B going. Uh, do we know what that plan B is? I wish to hell I did. Make sure you're using as many infrared remote sources as possible. They'll probably go wide. Yes, sir. Cottonmouth, this is Coach Whip. Over. Cottonmouth here. Sir, Governor Milam has insisted on speaking with you. No time for that. Affirmative. Just letting you know. Acknowledge, Coach Whip. Put it on my tab. Cottonmouth out. Aguilar studiously averted his eyes. Ignoring a call from a governor was something only one man in the Republic could do. He wondered how much of this operation the Council was on board with. However, ignoring a U.S. troop movement of this size would have been preposterous. No matter its cause. He stowed his reservations and reminded himself that from this point on, he was only following orders. How many units in the entry zone? At least a platoon. Damn. What's our profile opposite? Well, as ordered, sir, two platoons stationed just out of range from the border cameras and artillery behind that. Haley took a closer look at the scanner. Other points on the surrounding line were more lightly defended, as he had instructed. It was a bit of a risk, but the wired commanders had to be convinced that the main entry corridor was the only one expected to yield any traffic. Judging from events so far, that plan had worked. He hoped that Cutler was as wily as he surmised and would go around. Sir? Additional choppers moving into position adjacent entry quarter. Shit. Mirror the enemy deployment along the line. Yes, yes sir. sir. Come on, you redneck skate punk son of a bitch. Don't make me come over there. Harry dearly wished he had gone to the bathroom before they had left Ricky's place. Running through the frigid, dark wilderness as helicopters buzzed overhead was hard enough without also having to bind up his sphincter. He supposed at this point that he could just let it go. After all, who would judge him? But dignity tugged at his reflexes, and he couldn't bring himself to do the deed. If it hadn't been for the old man missed, he might have been left behind. His father and Ricky set a brisk pace but pulled it back now and then so the other two could catch up. The old dog, oddly, had managed to keep pace, which was something of an embarrassment to Harry. One of the choppers had now moved ahead of them, the searchlight skirting their path just to the northeast. Ricky stopped them. They're going to cut us off. Then we go around. How are we going to know who to shoot? More importantly, how will they? You got a point. Ain't nobody knows who's who right now. Don't go getting crazy ideas. We're the only ones ain't wearing uniforms. Whoever gets to us first is going to know exactly who we are. We got to get ahead of that. I got a bootleg of Republic Army uniform in the comm shack. It's off the path, and if we cross the line just past here, we'll be out of the corridor. So then if the wired guys find us, they'll shoot you first. And then you'll know to kill the bastards. With that, Ricky headed off to their left. They had no choice but to follow. After a few minutes, they reached a beat-up shed. The helicopter sounds were farther away now, but not far enough for Harry's comfort. They've dropped units all over the place by now. We're going to be cut off good. If we're lucky, they're not looking to start anything big. You get a bunch of dead men on either side, someone's going to want a war. From what I can tell, they just want you. And how is it again you know these things? We get to the other side of that line, I'll tell you anything you want to know. I tell you now, you get captured by the wires, a whole lot of people's asses are toast. Your ass is toast anyway, Shadow Man. Don't fool yourself. The Republic uniform was baggy on him but looked legit enough in the dark. He nodded in the direction of a rocky hillside path and took off. The group followed. He took them on a circuitous route through a patch of scrabbly hills. As they wove their way forward, Harry was certain that the sound of helicopters was getting closer again, 
Not that Ricky was deaf or that any of them could do anything about it, so he kept his mouth shut. At last, they reached a cliff steep enough to require them to holster their weapons and concentrate on climbing down. Harry paused as he stared at the Basset Hound, wagging its tail anxiously at the top. He wanted to call out to Ricky, but to do so would risk their discovery. However, he feared that if they left the dog behind, it would start barking. His father was the closest to him on the cliff, so he tapped his shoulder. Catching Lara's attention, he gestured up at the dog. The old soldier shot him an incredulous look before scaling back up a few feet to the top. He took the mud in an odd sort of carry hold and proceeded very slowly back down. Harry wanted to help, but he had no idea how. At certain points, it looked like his dad's grip was slipping, but invariably he caught himself. A couple of feet from the bottom, Harry caught sight of his father's face. He was pinched and wide-eyed. He was barely going to make it. Ricky and Mist had alighted on the ground and were scanning the trees around them. Harry's gaze lit on them momentarily, one second before Lars fell the rest of the way down. It cried out sharply, leaving a bright echo against the dark moan of the still-approaching chopper. Ricky and Mist turned with alarm towards the sound, Ricky cursing himself as he realized what it was. The dog ran over to him, uninjured. Harry scrambled down to his dad, who was stiff with the dull pain of the fall and the strain of holding on to the fat animal during the climb down. Harry felt stupid and useless, having called upon his aging father to do such a thing, something he would have been capable of doing if he'd been in any kind of shape. He was sure his dad would concur. Are you okay? Fuck that dog. Get me up. We gotta get out of here. Ricky and Mist had backed up towards them against the side of the cliff. They peered into the blackness, alert, but without seeing anything, much less hearing anything, apart from the growing roar of helicopter blades behind the hill. How far? Ricky nodded towards a hole between two slabs of hill. It was filled with rough barked trees bristling with thorns. Right through here. Gonna hurt like a bastard, but we'll be over the line. Get his ass up. Fuck you and your fucking dog. Harry held on to him, not so much for support, but just in case he decided to throw a punch. A hulking double rotor helicopter cleared the cliff, blazing its searchlight down a mere 20 feet from them. The weathered caliche dust, trapped from the wind for untold years by the space between the hills, now flew up to wedge itself into the men's eyes. Ricky yelled some unintelligible command and threw mist towards the narrow passage before turning towards the chopper, his enormous rifle aimed squarely at its door. Dad, come on! Harry didn't need to think. With every ounce of strength he had left in him, he dragged his father's protesting body into the thicket. Sharp vegetable talons sunk into him, and his screams beat soundlessly inside the bellowing clap of the metal blades behind. Mist was ahead, ripping vines aside with shredded gloves, clearing a barely visible path towards freedom. Amidst the racket, Harry thought he heard gunfire, but he could not look back. This was his direction now. Forward, no matter what sliced at him or threatened to drag him to the ground. He was aware of his father's weight, but it was indistinguishable from his own. The whole mass had to move forward, away from the thunder of volcanic death on their heels. Every square millimeter of anxiety he had built up in his nerves since leaving Brooklyn thrust itself into his bloodstream, and he surged into the pain as it came, daring it to stop him. Time collapsed until there was nothing more than the path ahead and the chaos he had left in his wake. The tunnel kept going. He had no idea how long, until at last, impossibly, he could see the end of it. Mist burst through first, into what seemed to Harry like a black hole of emptiness after the close confinement of the passage. He hurled himself into the lightless chasm, his father's body now a part of his momentum. They landed on the ground together, in a heap of blood-soaked clothing and sweat, 
steaming in the February night. The sound of the helicopter was slightly muted now, coming from over the hills. Mist leapt at Harry's aching body. We ain't out of this yet. Till we see Republic troops, we gotta keep going. Harry heard him, knew he was right, but struggled to orient himself. Ricky was nowhere in sight. Harry glanced around frantically, searching for his form somewhere in the murk, but could not find it. He caught sight of his father, rising with the help of the gray old man, cursing anything that could be cursed. His peripheral vision caught a flicker of light through the trees. He panicked, unsure of its source, but quickly realized it was coming from the opposite direction to that from which they had come. As it approached, he saw that it was a flashlight. He fumbled for his pistol, unable to see the identity of the light's holder, but reasonably certain of their location if he needed to shoot. At last, the light hit him square in the eyes. He shielded them with one shredded arm, holding the pistol forward in the other, a warning. The light dropped, taking in the two old men beside him. Harry's grip on the pistol tightened, and he called out. Identify yourself. Republic of Texas Army. Put down your weapons. You are surrounded. With no small effort of will, he threw aside his pistol. Lars had lost his rifle somewhere in the tunnel, but Mist's weapon landed with a thud ahead of them. Harry had no idea if the two men were carrying any other implements, but it seemed that the time for shooting things was past. In a rush of air and clomping boots, the air around them was now thick with camouflage and metal. Their arms were gripped by stiff gloves, and the three men were hustled off into the waiting dark. Harry gave himself over to their strength, as his began to fade. Part of him wanted to pass out, but his adrenaline wouldn't allow it. In truth, he wasn't entirely sure how to tell the difference between one group of soldiers and another, but at this point he could only hope they'd been lucky. Caught up in the forward motion, he allowed it to take him downstream. Lieutenant Aguilar tensed as the radio silence dragged on. The scanners showed his troops rushing to mirror the deployment on the U.S. side of the line, but as they approached, he heard no reports. Colonel Haley and Sergeant Flowers stretched the air thin with their own stillness. Then at last, a belch from the radio. Indigo, this is Flathead. We have contact. Three subjects. Over. Roger that, Flathead. Are they mobile? Over. Captives are ambulatory. Request medic. Over. Medic waiting on board. Bring them in. Over. The lieutenant could feel Flowers' guard lowering, but sensed no such change in the mood from the colonel. It was understandable, he supposed, given what had happened on the way out of the gate just that morning. Aguilar kept his posture crisp. They'll be in the Ford Armored Transport, Colonel, if you want to oversee their transit personally. Haley stayed put, eyeing the radar and infrared scanners. The choppers had backed off from the line, but an array of heat signatures continued to dot the other side of the border. None had crossed, but he couldn't be certain they knew for sure that their quarry had escaped, or what they would do when they found out. His intuition was pulled in two directions. Obviously, the object of the operation, Sergeant Selden, had to be seen through into Dr. Lilly's care. But the dots on the radar grew closer, not further, and he was loath to leave the situation in anyone else's hands but his own. Leave the artillery and anti-aircraft in place, but have all troops fall back behind them. The U.S. response to that movement would tell them something. Aguilar gave the orders, and presently the scanner's readout shifted until there was a wide band of emptiness between one group of dots and another. 
it was enough to be noticed. Haley hoped it was enough to let the wired commanders know it was time to back off. Slowly, perceptibly, the ground vehicles at the rear of the U.S. formation came to a halt. The air units paced a line midway between the back of the force and the border, some stopping altogether. A thick cluster of heat signatures massed near the point at which the fugitives had crossed over. It had been close. Three subjects were reported, likely the Seldons and Cutler. Capturing them had been the goal, but it didn't assuage his uneasiness much to have the dubious sergeant and the unpredictable coyote in his hen house. Eventually, all the helicopters were stationary, landing to pick up their human payloads, Haley hoped. As he watched, a steady trickle of blips began to file back towards the waiting choppers. The mass of them near the Seldon's entry point remained tight, but moved slowly north, gradually leaving the line behind them. It was as much as he could ask for at the moment. Keep an eye on them, Lieutenant. Previous orders stand if they show any signs of advancing. Yes, sir. Tell your people they made their Republic proud today. Thank you, Colonel. As the door shut behind Haley, the weight of command settled once again on Aguilar's shoulders. But watching the apparent retreat on his scanner, it was not as heavy as it had been earlier. He didn't know how Haley could stand it. Let forward transport know the colonel is inbound. The fugitives were Haley's mess to clean up now. Dr. Lilly scanned the horizon outside his bay windows. Lights from tanks and base camps dotted the desolate plain. He hadn't seen this many vehicles, military or otherwise, in one place since his escape from Austin during the reclamation. His calls to San Angelo could only get as far as Major Gonzalez, who would tell him nothing except that measures were being taken to assure safe transport of the fugitives to his lab. So they were here. He didn't know which ones or when they were arriving. He told Arshad that he was en route to the lab about an hour ago, but he hadn't left yet. They had spent the whole day going through his records, but with nary an insight that passed muster. If he was honest, his fear of figuring it out was almost as great as the prospect of failure to do so. His memories of the old lab had been transformed. Now he saw himself, pulling arcane clockwork levers as sparks flew and the wind howled outside a moldering manor house. The creature rising unnaturally, inhumanly, staring at its creator with a mix of wonder and accusation. What had he done? The gravel road between his house and the lab was the only one around for miles. The cemetery in which his long-dead forebears lay in permanent rest was the halfway point, beyond which was an unassuming concrete rectangle labeled merely Building 1146. Lily drove a rusty antique 1985 Chevrolet Suburban, for no particular reason other than it was easy to fix. It could take the terrain in stride. Maintenance was infrequent, as it only ever traveled between two locations. There was a dirt track extending from Building 1146, the lab, to the outside world. A little traveled trail that was not easily located by anyone who didn't already know where they were going. Aeolian had never actually been a town. Although it had boasted a post office between 1880 and 1939, Nonetheless, the population at its peak was only 50. It had been in the single digits for a century or so. The few residents who remained at the time of the reclamation were easily bought out of their poorly performing ranch lands, leaving it a ghost town, even more so because its sole resident was supposed to be dead. 
Arshad lived in nearby Breckenridge, eight miles north, which was itself little more than a wide spot in the road. At last, after bothering to dress himself properly for the first time in years, white coat and all, Lily cranked up the Suburban and drove through the blackness towards the lab. On all sides, off in the distance, he could see the army positions lit up. It intrigued him. Such a display was easily visible to wired satellites. If the army's goal was protection, who were they protecting him from at such close quarters? Pulling into Building 1146's underground parking garage, he was met by a short female army officer standing alongside an armored personnel carrier. He fumbled his keys from the ignition and stepped out. Dr. Lilly, I'm Lieutenant Stacy Graham. Colonel Haley sends his regards. I'm sure he does. He's placing the two individuals inside this transport in your care for indefinite duration, pending contradictory orders. I assume he's also responsible for that ring of fire out there? In addition to wired interest in the fugitives, we have recently encountered internal threats to their safety. VEF? Disciples? So far, yes. And then there are some political complications. His mind boggled. What hell had been unleashed while he and Arshad sat quietly poring over their notes? Okay, well, let's get them inside. Dr. Lilly, an extreme pleasure to meet you at last. I'm Dr. Ramona Vinson, former assistant to Dr. James Barrett. Mm-hmm. I assure you, James and I differ on a host of subjects, not least of which is the value of your own research. I am no longer in his employ for a reason. Lily nodded cautiously. Over her shoulder, he caught a glimpse of a young woman approaching from the other side of the vehicle. She came alongside Vincent, bumping her aside noticeably. I'm Nina Golding. Dr. Vincent here thinks the Vorn eat me for lunch. I'm here to see which of us is crazy. <laughs> You're in luck there. Insanity is our specialty. As they entered the lab, Arshad spun around in his desk chair, his eyes wide. He had even less idea of what was going on than Lily did. This is Dr. Arshad Dalal, my, well, my successor officially. Introductions were made and refreshments offered. The lab had never held any more than three or four people at a time, and Lily had to dig around to find enough chairs. After a round of small talk over some coffee and tortilla chips, Lily got a pretty good bead on the two travelers. Vincent clearly had an agenda which she wasn't sharing in its entirety, and most likely owed her allegiance to the VEF. Golding was the opposite, open to hearing whatever he had to say. He resolved to keep that in mind during their experiments. Has she been hooked into the ODA? No. I felt it best to bring her to you for that. And besides, she's not a seer. She is what we call a super source. I've heard occasional mention of that. Loss of muscle control while retaining consciousness. Has anyone on an ODA witnessed the... feeding? Not so far, no. But our seers were consistent in their descriptions of the phenomenon. What does it feel like to you? I just can't move. I stop wherever I am, hopefully without falling on my ass, and wait it out. I can hear, see, feel everything else normally. Lily paused. Barrett had an ODA, and had most likely used it on Selden. A superseer. Why hadn't he put these two together? If Vincent was VEF, the likelihood was that she'd sprung them both to prevent such a scenario. He had to find out why. Miss Golding, why don't you let Arshad show you the guest quarters? I'm sorry if they're a little shabby, but we don't get many overnight visitors out here. Or any at all, he thought. Mostly he used the tiny room for naps. Lieutenant Graham got the hint, positioned herself outside the lab door. Once Arshad and Golding were out of earshot, he leveled his gaze at Vincent. So what aren't you telling me? 
It's all rather complicated, but now that I'm here, I do owe you a full explanation. The fact is, I don't trust Dr. Barrett. We have that in common. I know my reasons. What are yours? David Weiss, primarily. Over the past few years, James has spent an increasing amount of his energy on politics at the expense of science. Weiss is his project, one that I hear has now come to fruition. He has taken the chairmanship, yes. Then so have the disciples. They are a core part of his constituency, and James has been entirely too cozy with them for my taste. Cozy how? Pulling strings within the BDF to get favors for them. Special amnesties, plum government jobs. But being James, he doesn't leave a trail. Certainly not one to Speaker Caravelli, although I guarantee they're in cahoots. So what's the end game? To be frank, Dr. Lilly, I'm not certain. But as his experiments progressed, I began to sense a disturbing through line. I've worked with him for many years, and he was always extremely objective, no matter how startling some of our finds have been. You know as well as I do how hard it's been since the advent of the ODA. Although scientifically, it is logical to pursue replication of the seer phenomenon to more accurately study its properties, James has been going further of late. I believe he wants to expand the ability beyond those who are naturally gifted. He seems intent on making seers out of everyone. Does he have those means? Not when I left, he didn't. And without me, he likely won't. I'm just going to ask you directly. Are you allied with the VEF? Yes, Dr. Lilly, I am. I'm sorry if that concerns you. More confused than concerned. As I understand it, public awareness of the Vorn threat is a central goal of your organization. Wouldn't Barrett's objective here overlap with yours? It would if I could trust him. Dr. Lilly, you know what a delicate business it is, tinkering with the brain. Your own agnosticism on the Vorn phenomenon is largely based on the uncertainty inherent in any observation of an altered state of consciousness. You think he's going to rig up a patch that will show non-seers the Vorn in some sort of non-threatening way? I honestly don't know. He does seem intent on being able to dampen the effect. So am I. But for different reasons. You want to know if it's a sensory phenomenon or hallucination. With James, it's about control. That he could believe which he suspected she knew. He proceeded on familiar ground. I presume you've put that technology to use on Sergeant Selden? Yes. Otherwise, his journey would have drawn far too much attention. You have a gift for understatement. So let me put it to you this way. What do you want me to do with Selden and Golding? Mostly, I want you to keep them away from James Barrett. Obviously, I have my own beliefs on the Vorn question. They may differ from yours, but they are not directly antagonistic. I trust you to believe your own observations, not the dogma of the disciples. What makes you so sure the Vorn are real? No one reason. More a confluence of experiences. It seems that the harder we try to disprove them, the more consistent they prove themselves to be. And why do you assume their intentions would be hostile? Because they're parasites. There isn't a single Vorn observation that doesn't involve a feeding. Through super sources like Miss Golding, we can see direct physical manifestations of something being sucked out of us. Or exchanged. For all we know, they could be symbionts, like bacteria. Bacteria don't hide their existence from us. The sentience of the Vorn at whatever level and clear ability to conceal their activities raises the threat level considerably. If they exist. It's good to see your reputation has not been exaggerated. I am a believer, yes, but it will take a skeptic to do this work. Provided that Selden makes it, of course. I assume you've heard about the border situation? No. Selden's idiot son put them off course. That's the reason we made it here before them. 
Colonel Haley says the U.S. Army is sealing the single remaining hole in the line, the one we came by. Fort Walters? Yes. The Seldon's last known trajectory allows a small possibility of them making it through before that happens. That still doesn't explain all the security around my lab. We're miles from the line here. I assume your VEF pals knew you were coming. I'm afraid the situation here is different than I'd imagined. You have to understand, the VEF is not a monolith. Each chapter has its own leadership and idiosyncrasies. Are they trying to capture Selden and Golding for themselves? I believe so, yes. To do what? They have no scientists. Not any that are worth a damn, anyway. I honestly don't know. My expectation was that they would understand my mission more clearly. Which is? Quite simply, Dr. Lilly, to find the truth and settle this once and for all. To bring unity back to the diaspora. The divide between non-believers, VEF, and disciples threatens to tear us apart unless we get at its root. My mission is the same as yours, and I will help you however I can. I appreciate that. Wait here a moment. Lieutenant Graham? Yes, sir. What happened at the fort? Abilene VEF attacked us. Major Levine was killed in action. Attackers were neutralized. Levine. Lily's heart sank. He knew now why everything in the San Angelo office was askew. Haley had to be beside himself. But there was nothing Lily could do about that. Did Haley order you to stay here? Yes, Doctor. Apart from that, I'm under your command. Good. Then keep Dr. Vincent away from Ms. Golding as much as possible. Or at least keep an eye on them when Dr. Delalalan are not here. Which probably won't happen, but just in case. Understood, Doctor. Ms. Golding, I'd like to run a few tests. Would that be all right with you? It's Nina. And yes, that's fine. I didn't come all this way for a sleepover. Doctor, Colonel Haley is en route. He's bringing the Seldons. been listening to the naive theater of the air performance of Rewired, featuring Petra Wright as Dr. Gabriela Neidhart, Tom Urquhart as Lieutenant Carlos Aguilar, Chris Bellamy as Sergeant Flowers, Keegan McEnroe as Colonel Levi Haley, Nancy Giamarco as Major Gonzalez, Stephen Prigmore as Ricky Cutler, Benjamin Napier as Mist, Reed Perry as Lars, Levi Ray as Harry, Hillary Tips as Lieutenant Stacy Graham, Ed Rogers as Dr. Wayland Lilly, Mana as Dr. Romana Vincent, and Trista Morris as Nina. Written and narrated by Matthew Broyles. Theme music by Paul Shapira. I'm Little Jack Melody. Tune in next time for episode 18, Truth as Circe.